Good morning and welcome again to Encounter. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter, where you matter to us, you matter to God. We're in a series right now called Overcome. It's all of the different ways that God overcomes the obstacles, the barrier to faith in our lives. We kicked off this series by talking about how God overcomes apathy and then how God overcomes fear and then doubt last week. And today we're going to see how God overcomes failure. But it's a particular kind of failure that I want to talk to you guys about today. It's the kind of failure, not where it's all of a sudden one thing drops off, but it's like thing after thing after thing, and it sort of erodes away whatever was there, whatever kind of success was there, and leads you in this place of discouragement. So what I want to do to kind of get us all on the same page is just put your hand up if you've experienced any kind of failure in recent memory. It should be 100% of the hands. If the person next to you didn't raise their hand, they just experienced that failure. They failed at that, right? We've all been there. We've all experienced failure. And one of them leads to another, leads to another. And then it places us in this brand new emotion of discouragement. And then discouragement cannot lead into depression. So think about what those things are in your life where you've experienced failure. Maybe you set out to do something. You set out to grow in a particular way and to become more and more like Jesus in a particular way. And you've just failed. For my wife and I, I can tell you it comes pretty quickly, uh, readily to mind. Um, we're huge. We're like diehard soccer fans, but not, but not like World Cup or Premier League or anything like that. Our favorite team is our, uh, is our eight-year-old daughter's soccer team. And we're just fanatics about it, right? And so, uh, and so like to psych us up before the games, uh, you know, we tell each other, okay, okay, this is, this is gonna be the game. This is it. This is the game where we don't totally lose it and yell and scream and coach from the sidelines and do all of the things as parents we know we're not supposed to do. And then we get out there, and then we get back in the car afterwards with semi, like, hoarse voices. And we're like, next week, next week is the game. We're not going to lose it. And we're like, I know, we failed again at that. And we just, like, struggle on and struggle on. Like, that's one of the kind of things that we're talking about this morning. Maybe you've set out to grow it, to become a better person a certain way, a more Jesus version of yourself in a certain way. Maybe it's like driving in the car and you're like, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to lose my road rage attitude. I'm not going to become an impatient person anymore. I just need everybody in the universe to learn how to use their turn signal correctly. And then like somebody cuts you off and like slams the brakes in front of you to avoid hitting that person. And you're like losing, and you're yelling, you're hitting the steering wheel. You maybe hand out the window, hopefully not because you're Christian. And you're like, I think I may have failed at that one one more time, right? We, all these different ways when somebody comes up to you, and as soon as you see them, you remember last week your conversation and you promise that you'd pray for them this week. And, and they come up to you and they lead with, thanks so much for praying. And it's in that moment you realize, I completely forgot and I failed again. It's discouraging. And enough of these discouragement mounts up and then it can even lead us into this kind of depression. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, about how God overcomes that discouragement, how God overcomes that depression. As we get into this, I want to go to the Bible and I want to hear a few tips from God about how he's going to overcome discouragement and depression in our lives. But what I don't want you leaving with here today is, to, is this understanding that God's word or God's tips or God's principles in any way replace psychological or even pharmaceutical help for discouragement, 
for depression in your life, right? So I heard this awesome story uh, from a Christian philosopher. He wrote this book called My God and I, highly recommend, Lewis Smedes. And in it, he writes about how God miraculously overcame clinical depression in his life. And it was an amazing season of his life. It was an amazing time of despair, but then turned into encouragement. And in the book, he writes, and I just love how he says it. He says, every day I experience the miracle that is relief from my depression in the form of a 20 milligram capsule of Prozac. And I swallow that capsule with thankfulness and gratitude to God in my heart. You see, these things are meant to complement each other. And we take every gift from God, no matter where it comes from. The first question though, on this journey as we dig into is who is it that experiences failure? Who is it that's susceptible to discouragement? Who is it that enters into depression? And we're going to answer that one by starting off in 1 Kings chapter 19. The page number is in the program if you want to follow along in those Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. Uh, otherwise, the words are on the screen behind me. 1 Kings 19 starts off with now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah, Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Hang on, what, did, what in the world did we just read there? Three characters I want to introduce you to. Ahab is king in Israel, uh, his wife Jezebel, and then God's prophet, God's person, Elijah, who was supposed to speak God's truth to King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now, King Ahab, the Bible tells us, is the worst king that Israel ever had up until that point. In fact, Ahab follows in a line of 19 consecutive bad kings, it, which means if two points make a line and then you add 17 more points to that line, like this is Ahab down here. He's a bad guy. He's not bad king in the sense of incompetent. He's bad in the sense of like morality. He's wicked. He's bad that way. But at this point in the story, he has almost entirely just given up his reign, just given up the nation of Israel at the point to his wife Jezebel to run, whom one commentator said is probably the biggest adversarial force in the Bible of facing against any of God's servants. She is a bad character as well. This is what, and then Elijah is where her eyes are squarely fixed. In verse 2, Jezebel now sends a messenger to Elijah and says, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And she's saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to have you killed by this time tomorrow. Now, if you're like me, you read a story like this, and you're going, why is it that she would send a messenger up ahead of her. It's like the villain in any Bond movie. And it's like, this is exactly how I'm going to kill you, right? And then he like unpacks the whole plot of the thing. Meanwhile, like he's doing his little gizmo gadget tricks and calling for help and like everything is solved by the time the villain gets done. Like why would she explain? Why wouldn't she just send the arresting officer instead of, uh, instead of a messenger? Why wouldn't she send an assassin to like just take care of the thing if she knows where he is? Why warn him ahead of time? And this points to exactly how shrewd Jezebel is as a leader. Because at this point in the story, Elijah had just demonstrated this massive, massive majestic power of God on top of the mountain. And so like the Yahweh Elijah stock has never been hot riding higher. 
right? Everybody is following after, is interested in this guy. And so she knows if she kills him or if she arrests him or any way if she harms him in front of everybody, like the political uh, optics of the whole thing is going to shift away from her favor. And like, this is going to be it. This is going to be game over for her. So she's so shrewd that she says, no, no I can't have him killed. So what I am going to do is I'm going to threaten his very life. For him, whatever reason, he was terrified. He didn't want to lose his life. So she threatens him, intimidates him, to make him, hopefully, go on the run and sort of like take himself out of the position of influence in Israel. I told you, she is shrewd. And it works to a T. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. An important note about theology and geography. Um, theology first is that in the Old Testament at the time, it was sort of assumed that whatever local deity you worshiped, that deity had power and influence only in the locality that the deity was positioned. For example, if you're Egyptian and you worship the sun god Ra, for example, your understanding would be that that god Ra only had influence and authority to operate within the national boundaries of the nation of Egypt. If you were Philistine, you had the god Dagon, for example, that god would only be able to operate in Philistia. Uh, if you were Israelite and you worshiped Yahweh, the god of the Bible, the god of us today, it was assumed that that god would only be able to operate and view within the national boundaries of Israel at the time. Which is why it's so important that we read that Elijah left from Israel, went down to Judah, the very, very edge of the national boundary left his servant there and wandered another day's trip into the wilderness. Has anybody been in that place after the setbacks and failures mount up and the discouragement wells up and the depression starts to set in and crush where you're just like, I want to crawl under a rock. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be in the presence of God. I don't even want to be in the place where God could potentially be near me. Just leave me alone. That's Elijah. He stops off at the edge of the border, leaves his servant, and goes another day's trip into the wilderness. I'm done. I've had it. I just want to be away. Which is why... It's so significant when the psalmist writes that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It blew their minds that this God would actually be over not just the national boundary, but over, over all of it. And he never leaves. He never abandons. But nevertheless, Elijah wants to leave and abandon him. So he goes a, journey, a day's journey into the wilderness where this happens. He came to a broom brush, broom bush, um, Sometimes it's called a broom tree. And he sat down under it and prayed that he might die. This is what he said. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. By the way, nobody asked him if he was better than his ancestors. That's just something he did. If you want to expedite that process of setback to failure, to discouragement, to depression, Compare yourself to the people around you. You will always find somebody better, faster, stronger, prettier. But I digress. Verse five, then he lay down under the bush or under the tree and he fell asleep. So this is a guy, this is a prophet. 
Elijah. He's a big deal in the Bible. And he's at a place now where he's going, take my life. I've had enough. I'm done. And he lays down wanting to die. When I asked a question earlier, I said, who is it? Who do we find is it that gets discouraged, that gets depressed? I just want us to see in the story now that there is no amount of, uh, of spiritual, spirituality. There's no amount of super Christianness that you can do that exempts you from the effects of discouragement, from the grip of depression. If it happened to Elijah, I think that we can all assume that we're, we're not quite at that level of Elijah quite yet, and it could happen to us. There's this awesome quote by Winston Churchill that I love. He said, uh, success is never final. Failure is never fatal. And then he goes, that it's a courage to keep on in, in the middle. That's what makes the difference. But that first part, success is never final. It just, it resonates so much because it paints this picture, doesn't it? Of, uh, of success being temporary housing only. Uh, success is something to be enjoyed, to be soaked up, but it's not something that's going to house you permanently. You can live it up in the short run, but it's not going to continue to get you from here to there, to there, to there. Uh, point in case, Elijah, you know, he, he had just experienced a lot before this story. Uh, he had declared to the king, Ahab, that because he had stepped off the path, it was going to be a drought and then a famine until Ahab turns the country around and heads back in the direction of God. And Ahab says, no way, nothing doing. So the drought happens. And then a while later, it's a famine because nothing grows because there's no rain. Elijah starts to get some of the negative attention put on him. He runs away. He goes into this, uh, this ravine, the Kareth ravine. He hides in the ravine and and what's he going to eat? He's in hiding during a famine. But God sends ravens with meat. I'm imagining little strips of bacon in their mouth because God loves us. And he's like feeding Elijah, right? The meat that he brings. And then in the midst of a drought and a famine, there's, there's a brook that develops and fresh water to drink. And Elijah is like drinking that. He has enough to eat. He has enough to drink. It's this miraculous provision by God. And then he's so lockstep in line with the heart of God that when the ravens go away and the brook dries up, he knows that's God telling him it's time to move on. So he moves on. He goes to a place of Zarephath. He finds a widow there and she's dying because she's so poor and hungry and she's just got a little bit of oil left. And he says, get all of the jars in your house, in your neighbor's house, and in your village and pour out that oil. And she starts pouring and pouring and pouring and it never runs out. And the point of the story is clear. It's that with God, there is no such thing as insufficiency. With God, there is always more than enough. And then the boy dies. And so what happens? God tells Elijah to go upstairs, go to the boy, where God in front of Elijah, through Elijah, miraculously raises the boy from the dead. And then God calls Elijah out on top of a mountain where he challenges hundreds of Baal priests. And they sing and dance and cut themselves to get Baal's attention, to light up this offering on fire. Nothing happens. And Elijah prays a simple prayer. And God rains down fire from heaven and consumes the offering in front of everybody. And then he declares the drought is over. Look, a storm is coming. It's a cloud. 
about the size of a man's hand. But he goes, no, little as much when God is in it. And he watches as the cloud gets closer and bigger and heavier and darker. And a storm pours down water on the land. The drought, the famine is over. Elijah, that was two chapters I just summarized for you. The previous two chapters. Elijah had just experienced the miraculous provision of God the miraculous protection of God and the miraculous God himself. And now one woman, shrewd as she is, threatens his life and he runs away, climbs under a broom tree and wants to die. Success is never final. No one is exempt from discouragement in depression. This broom tree thing is important because God plants these like seeds throughout the story, one author of the whole thing, to call our attention, to pay certain, to pay a little closer attention to certain things. I want you to see a picture of a broom tree. So I brought one with us. It's growing out in the middle of nowhere, middle of the desert. It's growing in the midst of rocks. It's not even dirt. It's like, how do you grow anything in something like that? Well, how it grows is pretty miraculous in and of itself. It's that this thing's plant, you know, starts, where does it get water in the middle of the desert in the rocky terrain like that? The rocks are actually really important because at night it gets very, very cold and the rocks get as cold as everything else around. But then in the daytime, when the air temperature heats up, the rocks are last to heat up and they stay cool for a little while, which is very important when the, when the wind blows off from the Mediterranean Sea and the air during the day morning is, 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 hot and full of humidity sweeping over the land and it hits those cool rocks and it's like the rocks squeeze the drops of water from the hot humid air up above and it gives it just enough nourishment to start to grow. More important than that, a broom tree in the Bible, the story of God, it's a place of despair. It's a place of setbacks but it's also a place of resilience. It's also a place of hope. And sometimes the two are not so mutually exclusive. So for example, uh, in the book of Job, in the Psalms, people talk about lying under the broom trees or the broom bushes. And it's a place of despair, but it's also a place of hope. Genesis chapter 21, a woman and her infant son are sent out into the wilderness and they have only enough to, water to drink for a little while. When it comes to the time when the water has run out and her infant son is suffering dehydration and there's nothing that she can do for him any longer, she takes that boy and lies him under a broom tree and walks away, she says, because she doesn't want to hear the sound and the sight of her baby dying and knowing there's not a thing she can do about it. And she sits down just out of earshot and she's weeping. And an angel of God comes to her and says, why, why are you crying? And she says, isn't it obvious? And the angel says, woman, open your eyes. And she does. And she looks over and there in front of her is a deep well of fresh water. And the angel of God says, I'll make your son into a great nation, and he does. He's saved. The broom tree is a place of despair, but also of resilience. 
It's a place of setback, of failure, of discouragement and depression. But it's also a place where God shows up. I just think that is important this morning because some of you are right now or you will be or you will know someone who will find themselves in the wilderness of their own setbacks, failure, and discouragement, in their sorrow, weeping. And they will see to themselves that they have nothing left and they'll wait for death to come. And I want you to know that that place is a time of despair. There's no getting around that. But it's also a time of divine encounter because God does not leave us in that place in the wilderness because the earth is the Lord's and every last thing and every last emotion inside of it belongs to God and he will meet you in that place. And then he will provide. Listen how he provides. Listen to, uh, listen to God's provision for our depression. All at once, an angel touched him. This is Elijah now. And said, get up and eat. I love that. There's so much food in the story of Elijah. I don't know why. He looked around. Elijah looked around. And there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank. And then he lay down again. I said three steps. God's prescription to our depression. Step number one, get up and eat. I love that the angel doesn't come bringing a sermon, which I'm not offended. It's cool, depending on the bread. Uh, I love that the angel doesn't come with a list of Bible passages or a rebuke. The angel doesn't come with a command to maybe memorize more verses. The angel comes to provide food and rest. And I just think it's probably helpful if you know somebody, if you yourself are in that place, and you're going, I don't know what to do. Everything at this point is just collapsing in around me. And you can almost hear like the angel coming to you and saying, get up, eat, and then lie down again. Like that's, that's on the to-do list for this morning. That's, that's why the church, that's why we've always brought meals to people in need. This, I don't think it's a coincidence. It's, just, it's something, it's some kind of basic nourishment. And you're going, no, 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 uh, I got to do the laundry. I got to clean the house. I got to go to work. I got to write a paper. I got to study for a test. I got to finish a project. No, no, no. Maybe the most productive, maybe the most fruit bearing, maybe the most spiritual thing you could possibly do if you're under the broom tree is eat and rest on repeat. Step number one. Step number two, verse seven, the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, get up and eat. I love this line. For the journey is too much for just you. The journey is too much for just you. So he got up, he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, there must be some serious like protein bars that he ate there. 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, where he went into a cave and spent the night. Horeb, the mountain of God, is a place where God has showed up in the past. Go back to the place, go back to the last time that you've seen God. 
If you don't know where else to go, go back to that place. Horeb, according to the book of Deuteronomy, is where God gave his people the Ten Commandments. God met Moses on that mountain. In the book of Exodus, it's called Mount Sinai. It's universally understood to be the same, two different names for the same place. Go back to Horeb. Eat, sleep, go to church, you know, meet, meet God. Go to the place where the last time you've met God, spend the night, and then a voice told him, then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, can we just have like some humility in approaching this and, and just sort of assume it isn't the case that God's just wondering what Elijah is up to, right? Like he's not over in heaven going, huh, I wonder if Elijah wants to hang out. Yeah, what are you up to? No, no, this is not what's going on. It's it's more leading than that. What, what God is doing to Elijah is he's trying to get, he is getting Elijah to vocalize audibly and externally what is happening to him internally. And, and so he brings it out of him and he says, and he says, uh, he replied, this is like the game Two Truths and a Lie. See if you can spot it. Um, I think it might be yellow. Uh, he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altar, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That's the type of thing that drives them under the broom tree. It's a lot going on. But like, this is what happens. This is what happens under the tree and in the cave. This is what happens in and setbacks and failure and discouragement and depression is there is so much. But to add to it, it's like the enemy is whispering lies into our ears and we tend to believe them. So embedded in the truth, there is also a stack of lies that we also believe that makes it exponentially worse. And, and God is going to call that out to replace those lies with his truth. For example, in the passage we just read, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord. He has, that's true. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. That's true. Torn down your altars. That's true. Put your prophets to death with the sword. That's true. And I'm the only one left. And he's going, I'm going to stop you right there. In verse 18, in God's response, he tells, he shares with his servant Elijah, all of this is true except for the fact that you're the only one left. In fact, he says, I have 7,000 other men and women whom you don't know about who have not bowed down to Jezebel and Ahab. 7,000 others who have not worshipped Baal. You are not alone don't believe the lie. Hear the truth of God. I think somebody today is under that broom tree or hiding out in the cave and everything is curled in around you and there's this lie being whispered into your ear that this is just you. This is your fault. You are all alone. Nobody could ever understand. Nobody could ever care for you. And the truth of God is saying there is 7,000 people who want to surround you with that love and that compassion. There is 7,000 others who are there and who are ready and who care. Eat and rest on repeat, but also replace the lies that you're hearing with the truth of God's word. And sometimes that truth is simply a reminder 
of who you are and your infinite value to him. After all, he did give his life for you. But then step number three goes beyond just Elijah. Listen to what he says. The Lord said to him, go back, go back the way you came. Go over to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Just give me a test on this later. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meolah, to succeed you as prophet. There's not actually a test on that. It doesn't matter who he has to anoint. It doesn't matter. Not for today, anyway. The point is, today in this story, God comes to Elijah and says, get back to doing prophets work. Go back the way you came and do what prophets do after you've eaten and have rested, after you've replaced the lies with God's truth. Go back to doing what God puts you on the earth to do. Elijah, if you're a prophet, go back to doing what prophets do. If you're a dad, go back to doing what dads do. If you're a student, go back to learning and to growing. If you're a business person, get back to business. If you're a person of prayer, get back to praying. If you're a person who serves, find somebody to serve. If you're a person who gives, give. Go back to doing what God puts you in this world to do. Go back to your purpose. Now, I shared this story. I read this story a couple of years ago about a guy who was at the very, very top of his industry, of his field. He started this organization. It grew massively. He's universally recognized as being a leader in the whole field. And from the outside, as it often does, it looks just so perfect and everything has its place and it all kind of, kind of hangs together and, it, and, it, and it's beautiful to everybody looking on. And then like overnight, everything collapses. Like all of it comes crashing down. His board in the, in the organization that he started fires him. And you're going, how in the world does something like that happen to someone like that? Well, nobody is exempt, remember. And this particular thing is he was experiencing, he was suffering under, under alcoholism. And he was completely unwilling to move and budge and repent from that thing. And in the end, he chose that over his work, over his wife, over his family. And it just like took everything from him as it all comes crashing down. As people start to see and unravel, we start to understand more and more why. What well, is isn't until a long time later that he finds himself in an Arizona rehab facility and he's outside, he's on the rocks and he's watching this sun rise and like all of the experience of everything and all of the weight of God, presumably under a broom tree in the desert. And he's just realizing what he has done, how he's messed up and the long road that God has for him ahead of time. And he looks back and he goes, at that moment, I experienced the closest thing in my life to the audible voice of God. When God met me in that desert and said, I'm not finished with you yet. Go back to doing what I've called you to do. I'm not finished with you yet. If you're not dead, 
I'm not done. Go back because the best is yet to come. If you've got a pulse, God has given you a purpose. Go back to doing what God has in store for you to do, church. If you're not dead, God's not dead, done. The best is yet to come. Now, now for Elijah, now for Elijah, the thing he feared in this world more than anything was the loss of his own life. After the miraculous protection, provision, the miraculous God looked out for him his whole life. It was the fear of losing his life that drove him to run away and want to die underneath that broom tree. It's just bonus material outside of this story, but what happens in Elijah's life, I think it's worth pointing out that in the book of 2 Kings, God meets him and his protege, Elisha, and he knows it's the end. Except for God doesn't just take his life. God sends a divinely appointed Uber, a chariot, to scoop him up. And in this tornadic wind, brings him up into heaven, sparing him from his greatest fear in life because that's the kind of God we serve. And I'm not saying to you, church, here today that God is going to spare you from your despair. That God is going to spare you from your greatest fear because he might, he might even use that. I've seen him use that. But what I am saying, church, is that I read the book and I know how it ends. And I know that even if you lack the energy to get up and eat something, even if you lack that ability to replace those lies that are whispered in your ear with God's truth, even if you cannot find your purpose to go back to, The promise and the hope of the gospel isn't that you won't die. It's better than that. It's that on the far side of death is Jesus himself waiting to meet you face to face and wipe that tear from your eye and say there's no more death and there's no more mourning and there's no more setbacks. There's no more failure. There's no more depression here in this place because you are now alive for the first time and you've ever been before. Seriously, no amen? Stand up and let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we need that. We need that message. We need that hope that only you, Jesus, can provide. God, we long for the day when your son, Jesus, will wipe the tears from our eyes personally. And you, Jesus, will meet the loved ones in our lives suffering under the broom tree and you will speak a word of hope that Jesus only you can speak God it's in your name that we pray all these things Amen